Hi, I'm your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to My Weirdest Experience Podcast. This is the podcast of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. It's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Okay, we're good. Hey, welcome to the show. I have Doug Knoll on the show today. He is a lawyer turned peacemaker, and he is an expert on communication and peacemaking. And I thought this was an appropriate topic for us to discuss since everything seems to be very chaotic and emotional, especially in America. I'm sure in other countries is similar. And I so excited to have them, him on the show so he can help us learn how to communicate better with each other and find a middle ground. I feel like the middle ground has disappeared and everybody's in their little corner shouting at each other. So welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks, Tina. This will be a good conversation. <laughs> so tell us about your background. Well, before I press record, you were telling me, you know, a bit about yourself. Tell the audience, how did you come to become a lawyer turned into a peacemaker? So my life didn't start out so easy. I was, I did, I was, I was, did, grew up in affluence, uh, but I was born deaf, partially deaf, mostly blind, crippled, um, left-handed. And uh, so my childhood was very, very difficult. And um, I couldn't walk until I was about three years old. I had three or four surgeries before I was three. And tough, tough. My, my parents loved me, but they, in those days, we didn't talk about disabilities. It's handicapped, right? I mean, this is back in the 50s where things mm-hmm. were very different than they are today. And so it was a real struggle. But the one thing that I was blessed with was uh, a good intelligence. And once they figured out that my vision was, 2400 that was in the fourth grade I started accelerating in terms of my uh, progression through school and ultimately I went to Dartmouth College and then graduated and came back to California and went to law school and started practicing law in 1978 after working a year for a judge and then uh, was a trial lawyer for 22 years commercial and business trial lawyer working in very large dollar cases. And along the way, I pick up the martial arts. Uh, When I finally earned my second degree black belt, which took me about six years, my teacher called me in and said, you're done here. You're arrogant. You're an asshole. (laughs) You're a trial lawyer. You know, nobody, nobody, you're going to start hurting people. And so I don't want to teach you anymore until you master Tai Chi. So I went out and started studying Tai Chi, and I was really bad at it. Uh, Tai Chi, though, has two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable, vulnerable to be powerful. Didn't compute for a long time. 
but I kept studying Tai Chi and I know you're into uh, new age stuff. So I learned to be, I was, became a certified pranic healer. I learned how to manipulate Chi. I can move objects and I can do stuff that, you know, most people not in this attuned to those kinds of energies, would just look at and say, no, that can't be happening. And one day then I was in the courtroom trying a case and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I had a vacation planned. And during that vacation, uh, I thought about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer and came up with just a handful and decided that I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to go through 40 or 50 years of a professional career and only help 10 or 15 people. That's not who I am or what I want to do. But I didn't know what I was going to do. So I came back to California, came, came, I live in the mountains and south of Yosemite National Park and drove, was driving down out of the mountains to my office when I heard the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is the West Coast Mennonite University. And the Mennonites, as you may know, are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches. Well, this got my attention uh, for some reason. The universe provides, right? So mm -hmm. I ended up enrolling. And for the next three years, I was a full-time graduate student, again, 20 plus years after law school, and a, a three-quarters time law professor teaching at our local law school and a full-time trial lawyer. So it was a very intense period. But the peacemaking curriculum with the mentors that worked with me completely changed my view of the world. And I began to understand that one of the limitations of the legal system is that it does not deal with human conflict very well. It's not designed to deal with human conflict. The legal system is designed to, to render decisions based on principles, abstract principles, but it's not designed for reconciliation. It's not designed, and it's certainly not designed for the vast majority of conflicts that people bring to the legal system because people don't have, no longer, if they ever had them in the first place, no longer have the skills to sit down and, and work their differences out between them. So as I was learning and growing rapidly, I explored the idea of opening up a peacemaking practice in my law firm. And ultimately, my partners rejected that idea. And they rejected it rather emphatically. Mm -hmm. And so I left. I gave a week's notice and I just walked away. I walked away from $10 million in a successful law practice and opened my peacemaking practice in November of 2000. And that's really how it started. It was the best decision I'd ever made in my life. I did everything I told my clients not to do, right? <laughs> no, no capital, no business plan, no idea what I was going to do. I was just following my heart. <laughs> and as a lawyer, that was pretty strange that I would not even follow my own advice. But it worked out. I mean, I don't make nearly as much money as I used to make. But my life is so rich. And I help more people in a week than I helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing that you were thinking about how to help the most people because that's how I think also. Mm -hmm. I think about how do I reach more people? You know, how do I get the word out? How can I help? You know, and so were you contemplating for a long time about this or it, you just suddenly felt like, oh, I'm done? It, it had been growing for quite a while. There was no... Sudden, the moment that tipped me over was when the managing partner of the firm, who was my peer, he and I are 
graduated from law school the same year, came into my office one day. They were slowly kicking me out. I mean, they moved me from a partner office to a paralegal cubicle. They fired my secretary without my consent. They didn't hire me a new secretary. And they pushed me, they were pushing me all over the place. And he came into my little cubicle <laughs> and said, you're not getting any more paychecks until you stop this peacemaking stuff. This was on a Friday afternoon. And I spent the weekend thinking about it. And Monday morning at eight o'clock, I call him into our firm manager's office. I said, here's my keys, here's my credit card, here's my cell phone, here's my stuff. I'm done. I'm leaving Friday. And his jaw dropped. Because I did exercise something that I had learned in my studies, which is people only have power over you when they have resource control. Mm -hmm. And he had no resource control over me. I could care less. Everything that he thought was important, I could care less about. And I was able to walk away and just walk out. And all the partners were roaring and coming, roaring. And said, what are you doing? How can you do this? Ah. And I said, hey, you guys aren't supporting me. You haven't supported me for 22 years. Every time I bring in a big case, you're not treating me fairly. And I'm, I'm done here. I've got better things to do with my Not life. only that, they're using passive aggressive tactics. Of course. To, you know, get on your nerves, make you feel powerless, bullied. You well, know. that didn't happen because... First of all, I've been trained as a peacemaker. And second, I'm a secondary black belt and a Tai Chi master. Mm -hmm. They knew better than to mess with me. <laughs> well, I was not bullied. I was not intimidated. Um, other people would have, they expected that I would bend to their will. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. If you guys don't, aren't interested in what I'm doing, then I don't belong here. So, so what did you learn and, and getting that degree. I mean, what did they teach you? What kind of courses do you take? I'm curious. Uh, so I had some really great teachers, some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. So we would study stuff like, um, of course, conflict theory, conflict management theory, which gets into social psychology. And then I got into neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Nobody else was studying neuroscience at that time. I was the first person ever in the world to write about this, this uh, neuropsychology of peace and conflict. And long before anybody knew what neuroscience was. Uh, so I, we st it was just, just broad, liberal, liberal with a small L education. So for example, um, one class involved historical peacemakers. We looked at seven peacemakers, starting with Tolstoy and, and, and looking at Tolstoy and Freud, and who was not a peacemaker, but he was included in the group, and, and Gandhi, and, and a whole bunch of historical peacemakers, and looking at what was it about their lives that caused them to be who they were. Another course involved uh, was a really interesting one. It was the nature of nonviolent revolution, and the question was posed, and all of my classes were Oxford tutorial style, which means no classrooms. You don't, you don't, I, it's just me and the professor, and uh, I was, pro the the problem was posed to me between 1989 and 1993, um, Czechoslovakia, uh, South Africa, the Soviet Union, uh, and a couple of other countries, they all were able to move from autocratic to semi-democratic or democratic organizations, institutions. There's been a lot of backsliding since then, of course, Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, but Northern Ireland and Yugoslavia failed. Why? 
So the semester was spent reading about the histories of these, all these different countries and looking at their leaders. And my answer was, it's all leadership. Mm -hmm. The reason why there's no peace in, in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians isn't because people don't want peace. It's because they have cowards for leaders, pure and simple. And the reason that Northern Ireland had the troubles for so long was because they had cowards for leaders. And the lesson was peace leaders have to have a lot of courage. And South, and South Africa, with Nelson Mandela, Mandela had enormous courage and moral standing. Gandhi, enormous courage. And he was a lawyer, too, and, and moral courage. So peacemaking is not easy. It's not soft. It's not simple. Another thing that we studied, that I studied, was the nature of nonviolent violence and nonviolence in the Bible. And this is it's a Christian university. I'm not a Mennonite. Uh, but I got really interested in that because I realized that a lot of conflicts I would be potentially working in would be based on religion. And it turns out that's true. I've done a lot of work in, with religious conflicts. But what's so interesting was to trace the nature of violence through the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, and then look at the New Testament from a political perspective. Jesus was killed because he was a political radical. And he was upsetting the status quo and the Pharisees, a sect of Jews who at the time in Palestine who were in charge of everything and wanted to keep the status quo with the Romans, wanted him done away with because, because the other people were starting to follow him and they were calling him the Messiah, but not as the Messiah in the sense of uh, some mystical thing that current Christianity is based on none of that none of that he was the messiah because he was leading them out of bondage out of Roman bondage and he was and he was quite political about it and his basic teaching though was nonviolent. he said and and he had some beautiful teaching and uh, which is almost impossible for most Christians to follow today you know, um, when you talk to Christians today a lot of not all of them of course that's a broad statement. But many people you talk to, they think about the resurrection as being the, the pivotal moment. You know, he was a rabbi. He had no intention about founding a, a religion or anything like that. He was interested in polit political and social change. And his teachings were amazing. Yeah. And so we follow his teaching. So I was learning all about that. Um, and then, of course, a lot of practical stuff. I ended up learning all about restorative justice and by the people who invented restorative justice created it long before the word restorative justice even existed. And I mediated over 150 criminal mediations between victims and offenders and really got schooled deeply in heavy conflict. So that was, that's kind of the nature of the coursework. Very interesting, very difficult. Um, I want to learn everything that you <laughs> took. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's the first since law school that I actually sat down when I was reading something. I had to have two a thesaurus and a dictionary with, because I mean, when you dive into theology, for example, which I did numerous times, uh, <laughs> that's a, they have a language and a jargon that is mm -hmm. foreign to me, and mm -hmm. just like law would be foreign to them, and or, or I go into sociology, or because the thing about peace studies is it's multidisciplinary. There is no one field. You've got to look at all all of the fields of human knowledge have something to say about peace and conflict. And so we study them all to see what they all have to say and what do they tell us. It's really okay. intellectually very stimulating. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. 
because um, you're looking at the big picture, you're looking at leaders and how they're behaving and how they affect the rest of the country. And the same thing applies when you look at organizations and companies too. The leadership is important. It's everything. It, yeah, it affects everything. It's everything. Yeah. So yeah, let's... Exactly. I was going to say, it's so important that, I mean, I've been called in to work in organizational conflicts and organizational dysfunction. And the first thing I want to do is meet the CEO and the executive team. And if they're not willing to change, the problem lies at their feet. And if they're not willing to acknowledge that and they're not willing to grow pers personal development, mm -hmm. then I, de I decline the, the engagement because there's nothing I can do. I can fix the problems short term, but they're just going to come right back. Mm-hmm. So what about power of the people, though? Well, in an in organization case. like a corporation or a business entity, the power of the people, they don't have any power. I mean, they're there for a paycheck. Mm -hmm. so they can vote with their feet and go somewhere else. And a lot of people do. Yeah. Uh, but, but organizations are private organizations. And as we have seen in our political arena, we, when you have a cadre of people who the most important for them, thing for them is to maintain their power position and privilege at the expense of democratic norms, for their own self-aggrandizement, we see a very fast erosion of democratic ideals. And that's exactly what we're experiencing here in the United States. Yeah, so we have a lot of things going on in this country, but I see a lot of fighting over whether to be vaccinated, whether or not to be vaccinated, who is to blame, who is responsible for COVID, and then you throw in the masks in there. You shouldn't wear a mask. No, you shouldn't wear, you should wear a mask. You should be protecting everybody with your mask. So, you know, it, it doesn't seem like right now, especially at social media, which is why I limit myself on social media now. Um, there's a lot of back and forth and polarized views. So from what you know, how do we, how do we turn this into a conversation instead of an attack? How can we communicate better with each other? Well, there is a very specific process that we can use to have a calm conversation with the politically polarized. And I'll explain that in a moment. Okay. First thing to recognize is why does this political polarization exist? Okay. And the reason that it exists is because there are politicians who agitate, divide, and destroy in order to get money and get votes. They have no interest in people reaching common ground. They have no interest in solving acute social problems. They have no interest in seeing the growth of democracy. They have no interest in public policy. They have no interest in science. All they are interested in is building their own political base so they can be elected to office, period. They are supported by a media ecology that is interested in agitation, anger, and division. Because the more they can make their viewers angry and agitated and divided, the more those viewers will stick with their media and they can make advertising dollars. So that is what I call journalistic irresponsibility. Protected by the First Amendment, but nevertheless, extremely damaging. And so when you take these two 
and then and then on top of that, you have a you know obviously the cultural divides that this country is more and more diverse in terms of ethnicity. We have uh, the co- the coast. I'm on the west coast, west coast, east coast, urban center. I don't live in an urban center. I live in a very rural part of California, but it's you get this generation. We get these generations of diversity and all of these different ideas percolating and bubbling, and it's very threatening to people who do not have strong critical thinking skills. The the people that we see who are politically polarized tend not to be strong critical thinkers. They tend to have a very short-term, very uh, small short-term memories. They tend not to be highly intelligent. And as a result, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, but the result of it is they cannot deal with complexity. It's what I call a VUCAR environment, volatile, uncertain, complex, um, ambiguous and risky. And that's a good way of describing our world and our culture. It's very complex, very ambiguous, lots of uncertainty. We're seeing climate change. You can deny climate change all you want, but let me tell you something. Here in California, you can see the climate change. My well has dropped 25 feet. We're in a 10-year drought. We had the worst fire in California history until this year. Last year, right now, we were in the middle of the creek fire four miles from where I live. And that's climate change. The whole national forest along the whole Sierra Nevada is completely dried out, dead trees as a result of drought. <clears throat> and that's what's fueling the fires up by Tahoe and further north. Mm-hmm. So people, but so that's very complex. It's very, and it means we're gonna have to change a lot, change our lifestyles a lot if we wanna survive. That frightens the heck out of people. So when they already have this fear and they can't deal with the complexity. And then you have political people who come up and throw fire on the flames by lying to them. Mm-hmm. You have the recipe for the kind of polarization we have today. That's the cause of it, simply stated. All right, so, so supposing you're across Uncle Tom or Aunt Joan, and they're politically polar opposite from you. How do you even have a conversation with them? The first thing you have to recognize is that you're never going to convince them that you're right. So don't even try. Mm-hmm. If you have a need to be right and for them to be wrong, you can never have a calm conversation with a politically polarized. It will never happen. So don't even try. Just walk away. However, if you don't have a need to be right and you really want to try to create understanding, there are four questions you want to ask. The first question is, Aunt Joan, tell me about the life experiences that you've had that lead you to the beliefs that you hold today. And so you, what you want them to do is start telling you stories about how their, the current beliefs they have were formed by their life experience. And that's gonna give you a lot of really fascinating information. And what you're gonna find out is that even though they may have beliefs that you find abhorrent, underneath you have a lot of shared common values. The second question you wanna ask after you've work through the first question is how do your beliefs help you navigate life every day? How do you, how do you, how do, how do these beliefs help you? And that is a question most politically polarized people have never been asked. They've never been asked how, what, how do these beliefs help me? The truth of the matter is, which most people are not aware of, is that their beliefs soothe them. They soothe anxiety because beliefs are nothing more than shortcuts. We call them heuristic shortcuts, heuristic decision-making shortcuts. 
that allow us to make decisions very quickly without having to think hard about a problem. And so beliefs are all about metabolism, maintaining homeostasis in the brain. And that's why we have beliefs so that we don't have to think about stuff hard. We can be told what to believe. We can be told how the universe operates and we don't have to think about it anymore. We just believe. That's why beliefs are so strong. Well, here's the other thing about beliefs is that if you, if I, if you held a really strong belief, Tina, and I gave you irrefutable evidence that your belief was wrong, guess what would happen to your brain? You wouldn't change the belief. You'll believe, your belief will become stronger because you're going to release dopamine in a part of your brain called the ventral striatum that makes you really feel really good about your belief and you feel really good about yourself. And that idiot from the, from the left coast is wrong. <laughs> and, so, and this is the way our brains are hardwired. There are all kinds of neuro, neuroscientific studies that show that when we confront somebody with a strong belief with inconsistent but true facts, they become more stubborn as a matter of brain physiology. They can't help themselves. So when you, when you ask the second question, how do your beliefs help you navigate through life? Um, the authentic person would say, well, my beliefs really soothe me because this, it's way, this life is way more complex. And I, why can't we go back to the way we thought it was 50 years ago? Not that life was ever that way 50 years ago. It's a romantic myth when we look back to the past. Mm -hmm. Just like the nuclear family has always been a romantic myth. Um, we have lots of myths that soothe us, support us through the complexity and uncertainty of life because life is very complex and uncertain. So then the third question is, well, what do you do when you confront people with different beliefs? And you're always going to get the snarky answer. I shoot them, you know, something like that. Uh, and most, it raises, it gets them to be thinking about, well, what do I do with people with different beliefs? Well, number one, we don't raise, talk about stuff that's polarizing. And two, I just don't associate with those people. I try to stay away from them. I avoid them because they make me feel uncomfortable. And then the last question in this conversation is, how should our society manage or be structured where there are so many different beliefs. Well, there's my, there's my camera acting up again. Let's see if I'll come back on. And what the heck? <laughs> it's okay. We can, I only I download the audio. So it's really, this is really driving me crazy. <laughs> huh? Weird. Okay. I'm going to have to do some research on this. Um, so that's the so the fourth the fourth question is how should our society deal with people who are have radically different beliefs, and that gets usually gets a politically polarized think, person to be thinking about. Sometimes they'll say, "Well, I think we should have a society where you can only think the same way I do," but if they also talked about the value of a democratic free society, they'll realize that that's inconsistent with the idea that there should be freedom because it's not just freedom for me; it's freedom for everybody. So as you ask these questions and you're reflecting and you're listening to their emotions and reflecting back, you'll find and you'll discover that there's a lot of common ground between, uh, between everybody. And it's just amazing what you can describe, what you can discover by asking these questions and be willing to listen and not try to, to, uh, 
not try to confront people, not try to manage people, not try to persuade them to your point of view. And that's the secret to having a calm conversation with the politically polarized. So in order to have that open conversation, one person needs to be asking one, these questions yes. and being open. Doesn't that other person has, doesn't have to be doesn't that. You have way. to be open. You just have to have you as a listener have to be in a place where uh, you are willing to listen and you're, and you don't have a need to be right. You don't have a need to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just doing this yesterday because I was talking to a friend and we don't agree on everything. But what I did was I listened to her, you know, without jumping in saying, you know, I don't like that politician or don't talk to me about that. Or I listened to her, even though I disagreed, (laughs) I still listened, you know, because there's other really important things that we agree on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. And so, and that's the key is the key is to do the listening so that you can find out what you do agree on. What, what do you have? Oh, there we go. You're what back. Do we, yeah. What <laughs> do we have? No, I'm not. I'm back. <laughs> Something weird is going on here. Um, what do we, where, where, where do we have agreement? And, and the truth of the matter is that we have much more in common, even with the politically polarized than we have indifference. And guess who wants us to have differences? Who is making money off of our differences, not our commonalities? Follow the money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's politicians and it's media, that media ecosystem who profits off of division, not off of common ground. Yep, you just gotta follow the money. That's what follow it comes down to. And that's why you'll see the political polarization the way it is. And, they, and they're taking people who unfortunately are not strong thinkers and they're manipulating them. And they're doing it quite intentionally. Yeah, and you're easy to um, manipulate if you are in fear because what happens with the brain when you are in fight or flight is that your prefrontal cortex shuts down. You can't think. That's exactly correct. So that's what's happening right now on a, on a collective level, that just all over the world. That's right. And so even last year, I was posting on Facebook. I said, "Don't feed the beast of fear." Right. Don't very, feed very it. Dear. It's very hard to to do that because we are so um, we are so locked in to our emotional experience and it becomes really difficult for us to to get out of that fear it's really hard so do you think the belief system is a cover for the fear no i think the belief system is a it's a way of well belief systems are designed to help us make fast decisions so we don't have to think very much Beliefs, uh, beliefs are decision-making, as I said before, they're decision-making heuristic shortcuts. 
So rather than think through a problem, we have a belief about something and we don't have to think about it anymore. We've just got the belief. And that's what we do. And, and so it's not to cover up the fear, although beliefs may have the, the effect of soothing us, soothing our anxiety. So how does fear come to play with the belief system? Well, it just that question by itself really can't be answered because beliefs may soothe us. We may have a belief that alleviates anxiety because anxiety is a form of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, a belief may prevent us from experiencing fear. So there are a lot of possibilities, but the relationship, be- but the relationship between beliefs and fears is, you know, is always going to be contextual. Okay. And what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that, that you can have a belief that has no association with fear whatsoever, but you can also have a belief because you're afraid of something else. So for example, if you go to Christianity, for example, people might believe in God or they might believe that Jesus was died to save our sins because they have a fear. I have a belief and a fear that there's a heaven and a hell. And so they engage in a belief of faith because they've been taught that to do so means that they avoid going to hell and they go to heaven. So there's an example of where a very strong belief system can be formed in order to avoid a fear that's been taught that says there's a heaven and a hell. Mm-hmm. That's, so a classic, that's a classic example. You do have a method of de-escalating someone. Can you talk about that? Sure. So when, as you said before, when, when we get emotional or get angry, the prefrontal cortex goes offline and the emotional system basically dominates our brain and behavior. And it turns out that there is a way of turning that around, again, based on neuroscience. And what we do is a three-step process. You're with an angry person. The first thing you're going to do is ignore the words. You don't need to hear those angry words. They're not important. The second thing you're going to do is you're going to read the emotions. And of course, you're seeing an angry person, so anger is obvious. But almost always under anger, there are usually six, other, six or seven other emotions. And then after you've read the emotions and you understand all the emotional experiences this person is having, you reflect back that person's emotions with a simple you statement. No questions, no I statements. So I would say something like, Tina, you are really angry. You're frustrated. You feel disrespected. You don't feel heard. You don't feel appreciated. You feel completely unsupported. And it makes you sad because you've been betrayed by people that you trusted. And you're anxious and concerned because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And this whole thing is just really, really making you mad. And when you do that, what happens biophysiologically is that the prefrontal cortex comes back online at the same time that the emotional centers of the brain, primarily the amygdala, but other other emotional centers as well are inhibited. And you can restore calm anywhere between 30 and 45 seconds. So basically you express empathy. 
This is a form of empathy called cognitive empathy. Correct. <laughs> I wish I knew this before, but I'm glad I'm learning this now. Because <laughs> I've had quite a few, you know, arguments with people lately, and we really didn't seem to come to an understanding except for frustration i think and a lot right. i think a lot of people could relate to that right so the key to calming an angry person is to listen to their emotions and reflect those emotions back with a use statement in fact i, I wanted to say that i created a web page on my website for your listeners and it's called and the web page is dugnoll.co slash stargazer And if you go there, everything that I'm talking about, you'll find the resources. Oh, great. Thank you so much for doing that. So how about uh, share, share a story that kind of demonstrates this? Sure. What you've been talking about for the past almost hour. So, so one of my projects that I have been engaged in for the last 11 years with my colleague, Laurel Copper, is the Prison at Peace Project. And for the last 11 years, we and our trainers have been going into maximum security prisons in California and in Connecticut and training lifers and long-termers how to be peacemakers and mediators to stop prison violence. The very first cohort of students involved women incarcerated in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. That was back in April of 2010. And I'll never forget, it's my first major, first big story out of prison, my prison project. I'll never forget walking into the conference room on about the third or fourth week, I think. And one of our students was sitting in a chair and she was quietly sobbing. So we walked over and Laurel knelt, knelt next to her and said, Sarah, what's going on? Because we were concerned. And she, she basically told us her story. She said, I've been in prison for 18 years. I killed a family of four as a drunk driver. And I came out of that accident completely unscathed. I was sentenced to 25 to life. I had to hand over my three-year-old boy, baby boy, to my sister for, for upbringing. And for the last 18 years, every week I've written him a letter and I've never received a letter back. At the beginning of this week, I decided, or last week, I decided to write him a letter using the skills that you've taught me about how to listen to and reflect back emotions. And I thought about all the feelings he must have about being abandoned by his mother and the shame and the hatred and the anger and everything else he must feel, betrayal. And he said, and today for the first time in 18 years, I received a letter back from him. And in the anger letter, he was very, very angry. But at the end he said, I love you, mom. I'll bring my girlfriend and we'll come visit you in two weeks. And she started weeping again. And at that moment, I realized the power of what I was teaching, especially to incarcerated people. And all that her son needed at a gut level was to be emotionally validated by his mother. And when he finally validated who he was as a human being and what his emotional experience had been for the past 18 years, he was able to let go of the estrangement and reconnect. 
and I've seen that story repeat itself thousands and thousands of times. You know, that's interesting because um, right now I've been working on like family patterns and fears and my family and I wrote some letters to my ancestors and what what I included in those letters was a form of cognitive empathy. I was, I would write to my grandmother and I said, I know your mother died 10 days after she gave birth to you and you didn't grow up with a mother and you had to grow up with a grandmother who had actually, you know, distanced herself from her daughter. And I just went on and on like trying to understand my grandmother and what she went through and where some of those fears came from. And then I would end the letter with, um, you know, thank you for surviving and, and being alive. And I honor you because I would not be here if you had not survived and had my father who had me. Right. Yeah. So the connection can be made even with with people that are not alive anymore. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I think that also shows how empathy can be so healing. No. And but not everybody can empathize, though. Or is this an ability that everybody has? It's an ability that everybody has. You have to be trained in how to do it. If you're not trained, if you don't learn how to be, how to use empathy, then you'll never get it. It's not something we're born with. We have the innate ability to do it, but we have to be taught how to use that ability, just like we have to be taught how to ride a bike. And that's what I teach in my emotional competency courses, my online emotional competency courses. I teach people how to do it. There's a very specific step-by-step -step process you use for learning how to develop these skills. Well, I think that's amazing. I know I've used that word already, but I think that's very useful for our times right now. And um, maybe we can start talking to each other and empathizing with each other first and de-escalating anger instead there of- There you go. That's what happened? What can you do if someone like attacks you? Physically? Run. <laughs> I mean, like with their words. When you, when you learn how to de-escalate somebody in the way that I described earlier, you can handle it with perfect aplomb, never get pushed off balance and be, have all the power that you need to de-escalate. It just takes practice. Mm -hmm. And you got people screaming at you in rage. As long as they're not, as long as violence is not imminent, you can calm them down. Mm -hmm. And, you, and you, won't, you will not get triggered once you learn these skills. And you teach this on your courses online? Online. So in fact, if you, that webpage I mentioned, dougnoll.co forward slash stargazer, you can see on there, there's a link to learn more about these courses. Okay. And a 50% discount coupon too, for anybody who wants to take the course. I'll give your audience half price. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I think I want to take the courses. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working with my empathy, but I'm sure that I could use some more practice. Right. Um, well, thank you, Doug, for coming on the show and You're welcome. sharing 
your story of how you went from a lawyer to peacemaker and um i enjoyed i learned a lot too i enjoyed listening to you thank you so much tina take care and find peace you too thanks doug hi friends thanks for listening this is your host of the weirdest experience podcast tina clark I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218 or you can email me at contactstargazingangel.com at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.